Welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Today we're coming to you from the Miami Book Fair, and our guest is Caitlin Greenidge. Her debut novel, We Love You, Charlie Freeman, was just published last spring to critical acclaim. You can find out how to win a free signed copy of We Love You, Charlie Freeman on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We Love You, Charlie Freeman is about a black family in the early 90s that picks up and leaves their life in the Boston area behind Mm -hmm. to move to a rural part of Massachusetts to take part in a unique experiment. They'll be living at the Tony B. Institute for Ape Research with a chimp named Charlie, and they're charged with teaching him American Sign Language Mm -hmm. while treating him like a member of the family. Now, I feel like I should mention that no one in this family is deaf. Mm -hmm. Um, The mother is a teaching assistant at a school for the deaf, and she taught her daughters how to sign. The novel also goes back in time to the 1920s, where we meet a character named Nymphadora, Mm -hmm. who was involved with the Tony B. during its early days. Now, first of all, I have to say, this is such an interesting premise for the book. How did you come up with this idea? Uh, Well, I had gone to a lecture series that was called Animals and Deviants, and um, one of the lectures was about a couple in the 1920s, a pair of married anthropologists, and they um, decided to raise their son with a chimpanzee, and they wrote a book about it called The Ape and the Child. The book came out and there was a huge controversy with um, other anthropologists and they were kind of denounced for doing this. So they they left the, they abandoned the whole thing and gave the chimp back and their son had like a really sad life afterwards. So I thought, oh, this is a really dramatic and interesting um, thing to write about. So um, that's kind of where it came from. Well, through the book, we see the difficulties inherent in communication across differences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's this Black Freeman family and the white researchers, or the family's daughters, Charlotte and Callie, and their parents, Laurel and Charles. Why did you decide this was something that you wanted to explore? Um, I was interested in really talking about language and the limits of language that um, it happened. I mean, I think. Uh, you know, I'm a writer, so I appreciate and love language and think it's very beautiful, but I also am always interested in those moments when language fails um, or when uh, language actually doesn't really communicate um, in the ways that we expect it to. Well, I love the way that the sisters in the novel use sign language to communicate with each other secretly. Mm -hmm. So you see they use it when they're struggling with how to say something or um, in one case, when Charlotte learns a family secret, she signs about it to a friend mm-hmm. who doesn't even understand sign language because she says she doesn't have the words to say it mm-hmm. or she can't bring herself to say it. Now, some reviewers have suggested that you use sign language as a metaphor mm-hmm. for the difficulties that we have in communicating with each other in society, um, particularly around issues such as race. Mm-hmm. Was that your intention when you were writing? Um, Well, using the sign language originally was just another form of language to talk about um, how people come up with um, ways to communicate in either really small groups like a family or in larger groups like um, a community or or, or, uh, or like a group of of friends, I guess. So um, for me, I just found, I mean, I think there are merits to every language and I think 
um, one of the things about languages are that um, some languages are able to get certain ideas or feelings across better than others. You know, like there's always that thing where you're like, oh, there's not a word for it in English or there's not a word for it in Spanish or there's not a word for it in French, but there are in other languages. Um, so I was trying to capture that kind of um, part of it about, um, about yeah, how we are, how humans usually long to connect um, I don't know if that's such the case anymore, but usually humans, a, a part of being human is wanting to connect and to build community with other people. Um, and that's really all that language is, is trying to facilitate that building of a community. Well, the novel really delves into family dynamics a lot. I mean, especially with the relationship between the sisters, Charlotte and Callie. But we also see this play out a bit between the dad, Charles, mm -hmm. and his brother, Lyle. Why did you really want to highlight the sibling relationship? Um, I'm really interested in siblings. I mean, I think siblings are, you know, you're they're the people who know you probably the best, even if you're not really close to them. They know you from childhood through adolescence through adulthood. Um, and if you are lucky and you're alive at the same time into old age, um, and that's a super long, the only other people who know you for that long are your parents, really, like not your spouse, not your partner, not your friends. Um, so, and they and they see you, um, you know, there's no like romantic love or anything that um, idealizes how you see. They see you for who you actually are for the most part um, and make their decisions accordingly. So, um, so I'm always really interested in that, uh, in that relationship because I think it's a, it's a unique one um, that uh, a lot of people find uh, fraught and um, kind of dramatic. But as an adult, you know, sibling rivalries are supposed to be gone and kind of over. But I think for a lot of people, those initial relationships that you have with your siblings influence a lot of the other relationships that you have in life. Well, your novel also confronts the ugly past that African-Americans have in this country with scientific research. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you had to do a lot of research in order to write about that? Um, I did do research. I read um, Mismeasure of Man, so Stephen Jay Gould's uh, book about scientific racism in the U.S. And, um, you know, we have this, uh, it reoccurs every generation, these ideas around um, race that we use to explain and to justify inequality in our society or um, or uh, how our, our country kind of looks. And so Stephen Jay Gould did all this really wonderful intellectual work of tracing those ideas when they come up over and over again um, and connecting them to say that it's not a new idea, this is the same idea just dressed up in different packaging um, every couple years. Um, so I find that really fascinating. I, I think history, um, sadly, we don't really study a lot of it in the U.S. We, we are a country that um, in some really good ways doesn't let, let history kind of um, uh, slow us down, but in some really bad ways we ignore um, the lessons we can learn from it. So I'm always kind of interested in the way that history repeats over and over again. You know, you also cannot read this book without thinking about the racist ideas that tied black people to monkeys mm -hmm. for so long. And you touch on that really in the sections that date back to the 1920s. Mm -hmm. Was that always part of your plan to go back and forth in time like that to really put the Tony B story in context? Yeah. Um, so I've always wanted to kind of talk about um, how this really kind of ludicrous premise could come to be and um, how it's traced back to um, a moment in the past. So I think 
usually when there's uh, there's kind of like a really kind of strange event or, or we say that something is like unprecedented or whatever, usually that's not true. Like you can look back and you can see how um, historically how that moment came to be. There's never kind of a huge upset or surprise when you actually start to kind of do the research and do the digging of where stuff comes from. So I wanted to, since I'm, since I'm creating the world inside the novel, I wanted to kind of create a moment like that where you could kind of see the origins of stuff that was happening in the 1990 sections of the story. Well, we really see the effects of isolation in the mm -hmm. novel. You know, growing up, Laurel thought she was the only black girl in Maine. And the Freemans are one of the few black families that live in Cortland County where the Tony Bee is located. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even before the family moved to the Tony Bee Institute, the girls felt isolated from their black classmates in Boston because they signed and mm -hmm. they weren't allowed to do a lot of the things that their classmates did, like listen to popular music. Mm -hmm. uh, Nymphadora is part of a secret sect of black women, but she never fits in as a star of the morning. So there's this unease and loneliness that's always present. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to situate your readers in that space? Um, I think, well, it's just an interesting space to write from. So writing from the outsider is kind of a, a long tradition in literature. And um, if you care, if your character is an outsider, they can often notice things about the world that you're creating that an insider probably wouldn't um, notice. Um, and uh, so that was part of it, just like on a on a literature level. And then also, I think um, I think we tend to when we think about the past, we tend to think of past groups as a monolith, like that there was no um, dissent in the past, or or um, everybody kind of was of the same mind, or like all people fought X at this certain moment. Um, but when you read accounts of the past, you start to realize that um, the past was as fractious and argumentative as we are today, that people had dissenting opinions, that there were people who were part of certain movements or part of certain groups who felt uh, like they weren't really part of that group, but we lump them together that way now because it's easier for us to kind of understand things or, or because we have the distance of time, we can see how similar they were, where at, in, in the time period, it's two people saying we have nothing in common, we're not alike at all kind of thing. So um, I find that uh, tension really interesting. Um, and I think it's, for me, it, it feels um, really kind of comforting as someone who both feels part of a whole bunch of different types of communities of writers, of black women, of New Yorkers, of Bostonians, all these different communities that I alternately belong to, but also feeling as an individual that none of those communities can kind of sum up my whole self. And I think a lot of people feel that way when we talk about which communities we belong to. Reading this book, there were many times where I just felt uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the characters often did shocking things that just as a reader, I felt like it didn't allow me to just turn the page and keep reading. Mm -hmm. Like I had to just sit there for a few beats, you know, before <laughs> I could go on. Um, when you're writing this, though, did you imagine the reader having that reaction? Or were you really just going wherever the characters led you? Um, I was going wherever the characters led me. Um, I like books that make me feel kind of uncomfortable and that um, make me stop and, and, and think about things. So um, just for my own selfish pleasure, I was, in, I was writing things like that that I would want to read and kind of be with. And so um, I, I, I like it when I'm reading a book and I either furiously disagree with one of the characters or the main character 
um, or when I get to a point where characters are doing things that feel wrong in some kind of way. Like, I, I like that feeling when I'm reading. Well, throughout the book, you also go back and forth from first person to third person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we get to be in Charlotte's head and we get to be in Nymphadora's head, but we're always kept a distance away from the others. Mm-hmm. When you were first writing the book, I mean, did you ever consider telling it from just one point of view? No, I always wanted to tell it from multiple points of view um, because, again, I'm I'm really interested in the ways that um, uh, that language doesn't connect. So I wanted to see a multiple uh, a, a event from multiple perspectives so that you could see how one character is interpreting it versus another character, and um, you could better understand the gulf between the characters. So what are you working on now? Um, I've been writing some nonfiction stuff, and I'm starting to write a new novel or new fiction stuff, and we'll see what happens, see where it takes you. Okay, well, I'd like to just shift gears now mm-hmm. and talk about your reading life. Okay, so, great. Um, what was the first thing that you remember reading that really was kind of a, a game changer for you, that really resonated with you in a, in a deep way? Um, probably as a little kid, it would have been um, the uh, Alice in Wonderland books and Alice Through the Looking Glass. So I read, start. I think I read those when I was probably like five or six, and um, would just reread them over and over again and really love them. So, well, it's interesting that you said reread over and over again because I wanted to ask you if you were in a situation where you could only read three books. You know, mm-hmm. for the rest of your life, you could only read these three books. And so, of course, you can read them as many times as you want, but you're limited to them. Yeah. Which three books would you choose? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think I would probably choose uh, one of Colette's Claudine novels. I think probably either Claudine in Paris or Claudine at School. And um, I think I, uh, let's see, I think probably Love in the Time of Cholera and then maybe another Garcia Marquez, maybe 100 Years of Solitude, too. Yeah. You chose some nice, uh, meaty ones. <laughs> yeah. um, on the other side of that, have you had a book that maybe you've tried to read several times and you just have not been able to get through it? Mm-hmm. Or you did get through it, but at the end you didn't quite understand why, you know, the, your reaction to it was very different, say, from critics or from mm-hmm. other readers? Um, I think a book that I try and attempt but I never get through probably is Ulysses and um I just keep kind of trying to go back to it. I've been told that the best way to read it is to just uh, not read it in chronological order, just read kind of anywhere inside of it. Um, but yeah, that's probably one. Well, finally, what are you reading right now? Um, right now, I am reading a friend's book. I'm reading um, Janine Capo Crusette's Make Your Home Among Strangers. And I'm reading um, uh, a couple of old, like older books from the past. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we had Janine on the show last year, and uh, we're a big fan of her and that book. Caitlin Greenidge, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Please go to our website, readmorepodcast.com, to find out how you can win a free signed copy of We Love You, Charlie Freeman. You can also follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton, reminding you to read more.